Well, today we do continue our series in Genesis. We've been looking at the gospel according to Joseph, and God willing, this will be the second to last uh, message of this series. Next week, I hope to take all of chapter 50. That remains to be seen, as there's been no time for preparation for that just yet, and barely enough time for this. But uh, we do want to continue on. Uh, and as was announced to you earlier, our hope is to have an exposition beginning in the fall through the book of Hebrews. And so you can be praying for that as we would be preparing for that. The book of Genesis is a book about beginnings, but it's also a book about blessing. We see God's blessing at the very end of chapter 1 when mankind has been created and he blessed mankind. Today in chapter 49, we see a dying patriarch, Jacob, as he blesses his 12 sons, as he prophesies over them, as they would be the ones to whom blessing would come to mankind through them as the covenant people of God. Jacob is on his deathbed. He's nearing death. Jacob dies well, as it says in Psalm 116, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, and he dies well. Think of Genesis 12 to 50, about 80% of the book is largely about God's blessing the lives of four generations of broken, sinful people. That's really what what that is. The 80% of the book is really beginning with Abraham down to Joseph and the 12 sons, four generations, about all of their sin and how God works in spite of that and uses them for their own glory. He, in this prophecy, prepares his sons for the future that would come for those 400 years in Egypt, which, would, which with each passing year would become more and more difficult, right? Until they're slaves. And so he's preparing them for that as well. A time when the nation would grow in strength, would grow in numbers and become a mighty nation. Each tribe that we'll see has its significant part, its significant role, actually a significant portion of land, except for Levi, uh, which we'll talk about. And, but it's only one tribe to whom the great king, the one that would be raised up, who would reign forever, the one that we worship still today, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king comes through one tribe only. And of course, that is the tribe of Judah, as we'll see. So find your Bibles in chapter 49 of Genesis. I'm going to read down to verse 27, and then we'll read that last section when we get to it. Genesis 49, reading from the New American Standard. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went unto your father's bed, and then you defiled it, and he went up to my couch." Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. And I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his fowl to a vine and his donkey's colt to choice, a choice vine, and he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulon will dwell at the seashore and he shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Ishakar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and he became a slave of forced labor. Dan shall be his judge, shall judge his people and one of the tribes of Israel. And Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the heels of horses so that his rider fall backward. For your salvation, I wait, O Lord. That's an interlude of a prayer in the middle of this that Jacob breathes out. Verse 19, as for Gad, raiders shall raid him and he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose, and he gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by spring, and its branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." From the God of your Father who helps you and the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb. The blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the spoil. All of these 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to him when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you might meet with us even now. Lord, that you would remove cares and distractions that would seek to to pull our hearts and our affections away. Lord, may we see the redemptive lessons that you have for us, especially in this vital chapter. And uh, Lord, we'll give you thanks and praise. Amen. Well, you remember in chapter 48, a very unusual blessing happened, another blessing like this. Uh, probably only days before this occurrence or in the very close together in time because he's still sick and he can't see. He's at the end of his life. And what happens? Joseph's two sons, in other words, Jacob's grandchildren, get blessed. And so basically what happens is Joseph receives a double blessing for how God has used him. Joseph's two sons are chosen out of 52 grandchildren that could have been chosen, but yet Joseph's two sons are chosen, a picture of sovereign election. Neither are chosen because they're more worthy than the other, but it's a picture of God's choice. Of course, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, Joseph was the firstborn, and so he was a favorite. And so it's natural that Joseph's sons, the first two sons, that is, he had other sons, would be blessed. His eyes are so dim, he can hardly see. And then remember, what does Jacob do as they're there? Now, these are young boys, right? They're not, they're not babies, right? They're probably like, you know, 18 to 20 or something like that. They're not sitting on his knees, but there they are in front of Jacob. And Jacob goes like this. And Joseph begins to get a little upset. Wait a minute. I've invested in Manasseh. I've told him of his preeminence. I told him he will be, he's the firstborn. He's to inherit and all of this. And Jacob says, I know, I know. I know what I'm doing. And so Joseph is a little um, rustled by all of that. But, um, but anyway, suffice it to say, that's what happens. And you see indications of this through the Psalms and through and Jeremiah the prophet of how Ephraim became the greater, though he was the second born. Well, today, as we approach this text, uh, this whole section, we've kind of called Jacob's last words. And that's really what you see here. And by the way, had I not read 
Genesis 49. And if you've been here for the last 12 weeks or so, from Genesis 37 all the way up, who's, it's, it's the generations of Jacob, but then there's a detour that where we focus on this one character for, what, 12 chapters. It's Joseph, right? And so as we come to 49, and you know, one of these tribes, Messiah's going to come through. And, and if you just had to kind of guess, if you didn't know and you hadn't read it, well, it's Joseph, of course, right? I mean, Joseph's been the favored one. He's been the one God's mightily used. But shock upon shock, it is Judah. It is Judah. Despite his sin, despite his wicked acts earlier. And there's some lessons to learn from that. All of the brothers will share in the blessing of the nation, but there's individual things said about each one, which we'll look at. And and remember, I mentioned this last time in regards to chapter 48. What kind of legacy are we leaving with our children? And I was reminded of, uh, I can't remember who wrote the book, but there was a book written about Jonathan Edwards and all of his descendants and this uh, horse thief, I believe it was, named Dukes and all of his descendants. And it compared, and just the, the nutshell is that Dukes' descendants, there was 130 criminals and thieves and bank robbers and all of that. Edward's descendants, there's over 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, um, dozens of mayors, vice president of, of seminaries, and, and so forth. And so you can see that leaving a legacy does have an impact far beyond the first generation once you're gone. And so today we have a 12-point sermon. No, that's a joke. (laughs) We have a two-point sermon. I I think it's pretty easy just to kind of put Judah and Joseph in one basket, as it were, or one point, and then all of the other brothers in another. So let's begin here with verse 1 of our text. Notice the repeated words, even in these open words, Jacob and Israel. Remember, his new name is Israel, right? And so both of those terms are used five times in this chapter repeatedly. Israel had prospered these 17 years since he's come into Egypt. They're residing in the area of Goshen, a very lush area in the midst of the the end of the famine, and then as things would begin to prosper. And Jacob now is at the end of his life. He's confined to his bed. He's he's gotten very used to looking at the ceiling, as it were, the the roof of his tent, and then various faces and figures that would come over to feed him or to care for him. And so that's that's the picture. That's the idea here. And then Jacob's sons, he calls them to come. And he says, I'm going to tell you, really this is a prophecy of what will come become of you in the days to come. Jacob's prophecy really looks forward to two primary eras, as does the Old Testament. You've got the fulfillment and the building of the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. And then, secondly, you've got the fulfillment of the nation of, the nation of God's people in the new covenant, right? The, the Israel of God, which is you and I, if we are in Christ. And so you've got the fulfillment of the Old Testament type being built up and set forth, all the sacrifices and all of that ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So let's consider these first three brothers. Reuben, the firstborn, should have had the preeminence, right? I mean, he should have. And, you know, if you read this first verse 3, You know, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Reuben might be standing there thinking, ah, dad may have forgotten about when I lied with his wife and when I committed these heinous acts and this is sounding pretty good. But then verse four comes, you're uncontrolled as water, Reuben. Uncontrolled as water. You shall not have the preeminence. He could not control himself, and therefore he loses the preeminence as the the firstborn out of 12. What what a horrible shock this would be for him to face. For a moment here, we can say, yeah, that Reuben, boy, how could he? And it, it even says that because he went into your father's bed, how could he do such a thing? But we need to remember that we, too, have this disease We too have this disease that we inherited from Adam called sin. Even though the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come 
has stretched out his arms, was nailed to a cross, took God's wrath upon him, and paid for our sins, we're no longer enslaved to sin, but we have remaining sin within us. This affects all of mankind. This is not a popular message. You won't hear this on TBN. But all men are sinners and ruined apart from Christ. Listen to Spurgeon on this in a sermon. I believe he was only 22, but the keen insight that he has is amazing. None of us are as stable as we should be. We had a notion when we were first converted that we should never know a change. Our soul was so full of love that we could not imagine it possible that we should ever flag in our devotion. Our faith was so strong in the incarnate master that we smiled at the older Christians who talked about doubts and fears. Our faces were steadfastly set towards Zion and we never imagined that we would go down by path meadow an allusion to Pilgrim's Progress, that that would never be trodden under our feet. We felt sure in our curse that we certainly would be that shining light that shines more and more into the first perfect day. But my brethren, we have found it to be so. Have we not this day to lament that we have been very changeable and inconstant and even as unstable as water How unstable we have been in our frames. You see what he's doing here is saying, don't take the righteous stance that I'm so glad we're not Rubens here. And we pat ourselves on our back because guess what? God alone is immutable. God alone does not change. His character is solid. That's why even in the text, he's referred to as a rock, a rock that does not change, that that is stable. But the reality is in the weakness of our infirmities and being tainted by sin, we are ever changing. Think about just today, how you felt when you woke up. Maybe the first little thing that maybe bothered you. Maybe on the drive to church, and here you are at church. How your emotions have already been unstable, even just in the course of some hours. Or over the course of several months. But He alone is a rock that we can flee to. May the Lord help us to rely on His Spirit every day and to stay close to that rock and to cling to that rock. Well, moving on, Simeon and Levi, they're lumped together. They're blood brothers, of course as are these first six. These are the sons of Leah. Very similar character between them. And having heard of Jacob's fierce rejection of Reuben, you might expect that the leadership would fall to them next in line. But as has been pointed out so many times by myself in this exposition, they too were guilty of horrible and terrible sin, weren't they? They were guilty of the slaughter of Shechem, where they went in and they deceived and said, yes, you can marry our women, but you have to be circumcised to show that you're in the covenant as they're wounding and and all of that. And weak, they come in and they slaughter the whole town and all the men of the town. That's why Jacob refers to them as cruel and and their anger and their, their fierceness. That is not the way I am, he says. So Simeon would virtually disappear after the time of the conquest. Um, And then Levi, of course, would be responsible for the priesthood. So Levi does not inherit any land. Later on, not now, look in the back of your Bible. You probably have a map of the 12 tribes of Israel around this time in the allotted land. And you can see kind of where they're at. Levi does not have land. Levi would dwell amongst all of the various tribes and fulfill the role as priest. In fact, during the Exodus, when God's people would go more and more towards idolatry, it's the Levites that stand up for truth, we see. And so application, we are all like Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Either these huge external sins of adultery, lust, these types of things, anger and murder and, and being cruel and all of that, But we're also guilty of all these other insidious idols of the heart, aren't we? Envy and jealousy and bitterness and all of these things, self-righteousness and pride. Paul writes in Romans 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, 
not in pro- sexual promiscuity or sensuality, right? those are the big external, not in that, but then he says, and not in strife and in jealousy. Brothers, grace is the theme of this chapter. Jacob's children receive a blessing that they can be called not only the people of God, but the very patriarchs. And so grace is all over this chapter. But we too are unstable and wicked. We are undeserving. God is committed to making us a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and purifying His people. Well, moving on, let's consider the blessing of Judah and Joseph, and we'll come back to the other sons. Now, it's remarkable if you count the verses that are given here. Five full verses are given to each Judah and Jacob. Um, Almost 50% of the material is given to these two. And so they're very significant. Five entire verses given to Judah. Now, Judah, we must remember. Remember his history. Remember chapter 38, right? Remember what happened there. It was a terrible thing. He impregnated Tamar, which was the wife of his son who is now deceased and did not leave a seed. And she disguises herself like a prostitute. He's coming in. He thinks he's going to sleep with the Canaanite prostitute. It ends up to be his daughter-in-law. And let's just turn back there to chapter 38, because this is very important. And I believe the turning point in Judah's life. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but verse 24. Now, it was about three months later, and Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. These would be markers, kind of like a driver's license or a wallet or something that would, a hat that would identify, right? These types of things. That, that no one else owns those but Judah. And then Judah recognized them. And she said, and, and, no, and he said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Sheila which he, sh- he should have done, actually. And he did not have relations with her again. And this whole phrase of uh, she is more righteous than I, I think probably marks a time of conviction and, and being faced with his own sin and probably a turning point uh, in his life. But that, we see him later, uh, much later, and back in chapter 44, when he's pleading before Joseph and says, Let Benjamin be spared. I will stand in his place. In other words, picturing the idea of being a substitute. Well, so Judah, what is said of Judah here? He will have the dominance of a lion. Pretty incredible. Verse 8. It says that your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The brothers will praise and bow down to you just as you and your other brothers did to Joseph. Your brothers will now bow down to you. The idea of the neck, your hand on the neck, is, a, is an indication of a conquest of enemies, um, pouncing on the enemy's necks. You have the threefold reference to a lion here, all different words. A lion's cub, a lioness, and then a fierce lion, just speaking of the completeness of who he would be as a lion. It, it pictures one that, that's seizing its prey and hauling it back and, and over the top of it with dominance. We see this imagery in Micah 5.8, the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among the peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue Likewise, in Numbers 24.9, he crouches and he lies down like a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Now Jacob moves more into the distant future and the dawn of the messianic age with verse 10. Notice the language. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. 
What is that speaking of? I think it's pretty obvious. It's speaking of his, his, his unending rule, his everlasting reign, as it were. It's symbolic of his kingship. And then this phrase, the King James and the NAS has until Shiloh comes. Um, perhaps a better translation would be something along the lines of until Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom and him the nations shall obey. Um, it certainly doesn't mean a physical location. We know Shiloh is that place of worship um, around the time of the conquest till King David. It was in the north on the road between Bethel and Shechem, and it would be a place where a tent was erected, a place of worship, but it has to be referring to more than that. And that's, there's agreement across the board uh, with the church fathers, even though this is one of the most disputed passages, actually, in the book of Genesis. And so very clearly, this is pointing to Messiah, the king that would come through the line of Judah. Really, you have three clear prophecies in Genesis. The first about Christ coming is where? Genesis 3.15. We all know it. There's one in chapter 22, and then this one here in 49.10. The 3.15 points to the idea that Messiah will destroy the works of the devil. And um, the second one, that he would redeem his people, bringing salvation to both Jew and Gentile. And then this one, that his rule would be everlasting before him. Now, I love it when it is so simple. You know, we teach uh, what would, might be called covenant theology and how the Bible's telling one story, one redemptive meta-narrative, as it were. And, and turn back to Revelation chapter 5. Here we have a reference, the lion of the tribe of Judah in the very first uh, Uh, book of the Bible, and then in the very last book of the Bible, you have a reference bringing the connection as though, uh, you know, if if it wasn't clear already, it's really clear here. The context, of course, is this heavenly vision. Chapter 4, verse 1, a door was standing open to heaven, and he's told to come up here, and he sees these things. Chapter 5, verse 2, there's a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. Silence falls upon heaven. Verse 4, John begins to weep uncontrollably. Why? This book is the book of all of the decrees of the unfolding of the salvation of God's people. And finally... There was no one found worthy, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah and the root of David, he has overcome so as to open the book and to break its seals. What a marvelous thing. So this lion, the one that has overcome to break the seals, and there's always in Revelation this hearing and then I looked, right? And so then he turns and looks. And what does he see? Verse 6, And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain with seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits of God. Behold the lion, and he turns to see, and it's a lamb. So you see the clear connection pointing to Messiah. Well, verse 11 and 12, uh, fascinating language here. He, he ties his fowl to a vine and his donkey's colt, colt to a choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Like, wow, that's a lot of wine talk, a lot of blood talk. What in the world does it mean? I think it's speaking of the golden age of Messiah, the messianic age of being abundant and extravagant, where there's, there's nothing that, that, could, that is held back. The idea of a colt being tied to a vine, you typically wouldn't do that. Right? I mean, if you cared about what was growing on the vine, you wouldn't tie a, a colt there, right? Because he'd, he would just go ahead and start helping himself. But the idea is, it doesn't matter. There's such abundance. There's so many vines. It doesn't matter in that day. You can even tie him to a choice vine. 
Now, those who enjoy wine are thankful for places, Trader Joe's and other places. Wine is not that expensive, really. But have you ever did a load of laundry with wine? Now, how many bottles of wine would that take just to do one load of laundry? You know, gallons, right? It would take gallons. Or just imagine getting your water bill, as I did recently, and was shocked as I began to examine how much water we use, and figure if that was a wine bill. Well, the idea is that wine, prosperity, extravagance will be in such abundance that you can wash your clothes and, and your robes in these things. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, some of us don't make this connection, but in the Gospel of John, what's the very first miracle he performs? Wedding of Cana, chapter 2, right? Turning the water into wine. I think it's very fitting here that that's his first miracle. In light of this, that, that, that wine was in such abundance just as the water was. These jars that would be used for washing are turned into wine and quite good wine. The abundance of wine singled to Israel that Messiah was indeed on the scene and present. And everyone who knew the scepter-bearing Messiah would come out of Judah and, and knew of these verses would be able to see the connection. Verse 12, his eyes are dull from wine. That's an unfortunate translation. It's probably the idea that there's a, a sparkle or, or something along those lines. Uh, could be darker than wine. His eyes are very dark. Um, but the idea here is that his eyes are upon us. His teeth are whiter than milk. Uh, there's an allusion to so in Song of Solomon about that. The idea is that his eyes are there in the way he looks at us. To not think that he looks at us with this frown or this scowl, but he actually looks upon us with favor because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He looks upon you in the midst of all of your struggles with pleasure as a child of God and not a scowl. There's a sparkle in his eye even for you. Well, let's skip down to Joseph now, verse 22. Judah, you really see that what we've just read, largely verses 10 to 12, a future purpose as Messiah would come and the Messianic age would come. Joseph is much more like a fulfilled purpose we see here. Uh, he's a fruitful vine. Uh, remember how he received the double blessing of his sons? We've already mentioned that earlier. Joseph uh, had been for his family and the surrounding world during the famine this fruitful vine, this fruitful spring, a fruitful tree where the branches just fell down, probably a, an indication of the abundance of food that saved the world. But then verse 23, what does it say? The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. Probably a reference to his enemies, which would be, first of all, who? His own brothers, right? That viciously attacked him with their words, Potiphar's wife, and in Egypt in general, and in prison. Verse 24, he's the, the mighty one of Jacob, and there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. There's reference to this in Isaiah 60. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Also this reference to shepherd. You remember the only other reference to shepherd was earlier how Egyptians don't eat with shepherds because they look down on them so much. God is being painted as a faithful shepherd of which David would draw from as he pens Psalm 23, one of our most beloved psalms. Makes reference to the stone of Israel. Great biblical metaphor of which we've already talked about. The rock. The psalms speak of God being a rock. Christ is a rock. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, right? The, when the Moses beat the rock and water came from the rock. Paul tells us that rock was Christ. 2 Samuel 23.3, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel spoke to me. And so this beautiful metaphor here. And then the Almighty, this reference to El Shaddai, again there in verse 25. So many divine names and metaphors are here used in this blessing to Joseph, all pointing to the great God 
who had not only delivered him from the pit when he was 17 years old, who delivered him and preserved him all through the time in Egypt, and then as he's ruling Egypt, God's faithfulness to him as a blessed child of God. And we too are so blessed as the people of God. We're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us from before the foundation of the world. Now, it's interesting. If you look, there's a lot of future blessings coming to Judah. And a lot of stated blessings that have already happened or will continue to happen in Joseph's lifetime, but not so much into the Messianic age here. And I think it's a reminder that Joseph always had that mindset that we don't have chapter and verse, but he had that mindset, Lord, here am I, use me however you wish. He's in prison, we don't see him grumbling. He's, he's in a pit, we don't see him grumbling. We see him crying out to God and drawing ever near to God in a vital relationship with God. <clears throat> he is content to be used of God for as long as God needs to use him, but he's also content to fall back into the background as Judah would take the preeminence and the prominence. I'm reminded of Robert Murray McShane about 200 years ago in Scotland, a faithful pastor that um, died at the age of 29. He had poor health. And um, because of his poor health, a congregation had sent him to Palestine. I think he was doing some preaching there, but it was also meant to revive his health. And a young guy, younger than McShane, you know, uh, filled the pulpit, a young guy by the name of Burns. And there was, as you know, the story, enormous blessing of God. So the main preacher kind of leaves the church for a while, an enormous blessing comes upon the church. McShane rejoiced in that. There's nothing to be envious about or anything such thing. In fact, when I'm gone overseas on these trips or whatever, I'm praying so earnestly, Lord, just use this place while I'm not there so you can't attach anything to me. Well, let's look quickly, brethren, at the rest of these sons, and it will be very quickly. There's not a whole lot said here. We're going to pick it up verse 13. Um, Zebulon's prime location would siphon prosperity from the sea. Um, even though the tribe would not have any ports of his own, it would be just one tribe inland from, from the sea there, but it, it, says, it, it indicates that there would be trade and commerce with those who are seafaring. Ishkar it's called a strong donkey. That's not meant to be a ridicule, you donkey. It's not meant to be like that. It's indicating its strength, okay? Um, but it settles in a fer- fertile land and is embraced uh, or has some level of prosperity, and, but yet they would rather uh, be subservient to the pagan nations around them. Why? Because they lack ambition, and so they, the text says they're laying down. They have many options at their fingertips, but they're actually lazy, and they would end up living very close to pagan Sidon. Actually, both of these, um, Zebulon and Ishkar, would be in the upper northwest, as it were, up near Sidon. Jacob now moves to the sons from his concubines, beginning with Dan. Uh, Daniel means God is my judge. Dan is a very small tribe, if you look at a look at a map, uh, but it does say uh, that, that they, would, uh, they would fight and suffer, uh, they would bite the horse's heel, and there's some dispensationalists that would see this serpent description, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, and say, aha, Antichrist must come from the tribe of Dan, I think that's a huge stretch, I don't think it's saying that here, uh, those of you that may hold to that, maybe you can correct me later. Um, but Dan would be known for f- incredible feats, though it's such a tiny tribe. Samson would come from the tribe of Dan. We know of his many feats. In the verse 18, it's almost as though the patriarch you know, is exhausted so far, and he prays, and he's thinking of these future blessings that would come to Judah, the messianic blessings. <clears throat> and what does he say? For your salvation I wait, O Lord. It's almost like, like a Selah, right, in the Psalms, like a breather, a pause. And then he continues on, verse 19. As for Gad, and, and these next three, there's a big play on words. As for Gad, the raiders shall raid him, and he will raid at their heels. 
Gad would resign in a, reside in a, a land subject to many attacks. Uh, they would be east of the Jordan, close to Moab over there, if you know that area. Uh, again, another small tribe, Asher, on the northern coastline, a very lush land, much prosperity, uh, an indication that, and he will yield royal dainties, so they, they, they produce some uh, extravagant food. Naphtali, it's like a doe that's sure-footed. It's a prospering tribe. It's from Naphtali in Matthew 4 that Jesus begins his ministry north of Galilee as he heads south. And then Benjamin, we see Benjamin here down in verse 27, a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. Well, you'd think there'd be more said about Benjamin, but that's pretty much what's said. But think about it. Saul and Jonathan come from the tribe of Benjamin. In the coming centuries, when Israel would go to war, it was common that they would cry out, after you, O Benjamin, and as they would lead out. Now let's read verses 29 to the end. I'll make a brief comment and we'll have some application. Then he charged them and said, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father's in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field at Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah. And there I buried Leah in the field in the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So the very last things that he says, two things. One, the blessing, the prophecy upon his sons. And the final thing, a declaration of his sure faith in God in the promised land. Uh, that he wants to be buried there. Jacob is determined to be buried in the promised land along with his ancestors, which indicates his hope in the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that were there. Now, the Lord put it on my heart to make this unusual application from here. We've touched on this a few times. This whole idea of being buried. Now, I don't know how hard it is to buy a cave and to have all your ancestors in that. That's probably pretty hard. But there is something to be said for the burial of a body. And I'll just share a few observations. I had a lot more. I had to really cut it down. Um, In the the Bible, burial is frequently portrayed in, in the Old and New Testaments as the way the godly cared for their dead. I have several verses for that. Non-burial of the dead was regarded as a sign of contempt and judgment. You see that in Deuteronomy 28, 2 Kings 9. In fact, let's see if I can... Psalm 79, in verse 3, you have poured out their blood like water around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury them. You have become a reproach to our neighbors and scoffing and derision of those around us. There's more context to that, but the Jews always rejected cremation as a funeral rite. Uh, the Mishnah taught that the burial, that the burning of human bodies was unacceptable because it was a sign of idolatry. Cremation was denounced. This is uh, Albert, Alfred Edersheim. Creation was denounced as a purely heathen practice contrary to the whole spirit of Old Testament teaching. Now, in the last 100 years, 150 years, uh, non-Christian groups have started more of a movement of more inexpensive ways to take care of the dead through cremation. This has become very popular. Those of us who live in Southern California, are, there's many, and even some of my family members, who are faced with this decision and um, it just, you just don't have the money to buy a plot and all of that type of thing. And, and so, and oftentimes this comes about because there's not the proper planning. Somebody dies and suddenly you've got 102 decisions you have to make. And maybe that's one that's not talked about. Now, I want to be clear that having your mother or your uncle or your spouse cremated is not the unpardonable sin. 
We're saved by grace and through faith. But this is something to consider. And, and I hope that you will consider it as you make decisions in your family. Well, let's talk about how this points to Christ, our dear Savior, this whole text here. Um, how does this point to Christ? Well, Joseph overcame just like Jesus overcame. And what did they both overcome? The cruel treatment of their brethren. Joseph overcame, though he, his brothers tried to kill him and all of that. He overcame him, and so too with Jesus, who is now exalted, and yet he is merciful to them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is a rock. He tells Peter, I also say to you, Peter, upon this rock, the rock is the confession of who Christ is as Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's triumphed over all of God's enemies. The devil is under his feet. All of his enemies are under his feet. He reigns forever. That Davidic covenant, which we didn't really have time to read, I'll just read a portion of it. 2 Samuel 7, very vital text. I will raise up your descendant after you. He will come forth from you, that is from your seed, will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever. There's a dual reference to Solomon in the immediate sense, to Christ as the one that will reign forever and ever long after Solomon is gone. It's his blood and his blood alone that cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 7.14 speaks of the saints. They washed their robes and made them white and the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, one day we will join the saints in worshiping this Lamb, worshiping the Lion of the tribe of Judah, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, might forever and ever. Do you long for that day? Do you long to worship in purity without being tainted by sin? Four brief applications for you. Number one, God is the one that sovereignly blesses us. Maybe it's economical. Maybe it's uh, your children not being converted and, and you see others who have done far less training and somehow all of their kids are believers and serving the Lord. It is God who sovereignly blesses. We submit ourselves to him. We're to be faithful with what we're called to do. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Know whatever is in your life, know whatever your life circumstances are, that it is in the perfect plan of God if you are a child of God. Secondly, the fruit of the Spirit is absolutely essential in the Christian life especially self-control. We see this from the first few brothers, that these uncontrolled sexual passions you will reap. God is not mocked. Looking at porn once, twice, three times, ten it won't happen again. It's only been 20 times. And next thing you know, you can't control yourself. Lusting in your mind continually. And finally, the opportunity presents itself to engage in an act of fornication or adultery, and you are uncontrolled as water. Why? Because you have not disciplined your mind. You have not put on the armor of God. And the same goes true for the sins of Simeon and Levi, of uncontrolled anger and fierceness and, and being brutal. Fits of rage. You know, you get in your car and you're just in a fit of rage and you hit a pedestrian. You can never take that back. You've killed an innocent person. The Proverbs says, 25, 28, like a city that is broken into its walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Third, Jacob speaks the truth and he's and given the prophecy. Those of us who teach and preach, and many of you in the Sunday school classes, the youth group, and evangelism must make sure that you are declaring the truth of God and only the truth of God. Jacob preaches the whole counsel of God. He gives the blessings as well as the curses. He tells the bad news as well as the good news. What about you when you have opportunity to declare the things of God? 
Don't be like the popular preachers today that are popular for that very reason because they do not declare these things. They remove sin. They remove all of this. God just wants you to have positive thoughts and and He's going to bless you and blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. And then also, in regards to leaving that godly heritage, it's so vital So important. Character is important. Parents, we have an enormous job in the training of our children, don't we? It's an enormous job. It's a job so great that that none of us are capable of doing it in and of our own strength. We want to train them not to be lazy as we see, to be productive, to be industrious, and, and all of these types of things. And, and some of you parents, you're, yes, we want you to be a physicist or a doctor or, or whatever great career that could have life-changing effects for many people and impact the world for good. There's nothing wrong with those things unless the greatest and most important thing is left out. Training their godly character. Training them to fear God and to serve Him. That's the most vital thing. And so you young people... As you make decisions about where I will go to college and who I will marry and all of those things, those are big decisions. But the biggest thing is, will I follow God and will I serve Him? Will I glorify Him with every fiber of my being every day of my life? We must overcome adversity and strive to not be what is called commonly in our day, snowflakes. We must be men and women who are resolute in the truth of God and are not shaken and wavered by the winds of error and heresy that come in and seek to blow upon us. Don't you love how the Bible's wedded together? That first promise, right? Genesis 3.15. The devil will be conquered. The serpent that deceived Eve and then Eve deceived her husband will indeed be conquered, the promise of Messiah, all the way to the fulfillment that we see in Revelation. It's a beautiful thing. And even in chapter 49 of Genesis, you see a beautiful picture of that. And through the line of David, when the lion of the tribe of Judah came, he was born in Judah in his tribal territory in the town of Bethlehem. He was born sinless. He was born as the God-man incarnating, uh, fully God, fully man. And he went to a cross to die for sinners. We are all sinners. He went to die for sinners. The cup of the new covenant in his blood, his precious sinless blood was shed for his people. We have the privilege to participate in that now. Of course, that is only for believers. If you're outside of Christ, have dealings with God because God is holy. He is just. He's a God of wrath to those who shake their fist and rebel that I will, I will be in control of my own destiny, not anyone else. Submit yourselves. Humble yourselves to God and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for the promises that are here and the promises of these prophecies and uh, regarding Judah that we've seen already fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we long to see them further fulfilled in the time to come. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.